Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. On the periphery of the Malian city of Gao, close to the banks of the River Niger, sits an extraordinary pyramid-like structure, standing 17 metres tall and reportedly constructed with mud and wood shipped in from Mecca, some 7,000 kilometres away. It's known as the Tomb of Askia, and it's believed to be the last resting place of Askia Muhammad I, a man who ruled one of Africa's largest, yet less remembered super states, the Songhai Empire. In this episode, I detail the key events and the meteoric rise and the spectacular fall of this extraordinary empire. And I talk to an expert, Professor Mauro Nobili of the University of Illinois. His areas of expertise include Mali, Islam and Arabic manuscripts in West Africa. And his published works include Sultan Caliph and Renewer of the Faith, Ahmed Lobo, the Tariq al-Fatash, and the making of an Islamic state in West Africa. The modern nation of Mali lies in the Sahel region of Africa, Sahel being derived from an Arabic word meaning shoreline or coast. But don't be deceived by the name. Gao is a long way from the ocean, and the term Sahel is used here to illustrate the wider area as one of transition from the barren Sahara Desert in the north to the lush tropical rainforest to the south. In the northern part of the Sahel, Goa, like most major cities, is built upon the all-important river Niger, a critical water source. By the 10th century, it had become a trading hub, linking the Kingdom of Ghana in the west with other cities and empires across the Sahara. This was Africa's equivalent of the Silk Road, and a route for the transportation of gold, salt, and slaves. All this trade bought wealth, and at the start of the 14th century, the powerful Malian Empire annexed Gao. Around this time, a visiting scholar described it as one of the finest, largest, and most fertile cities in the region. But a century later, the Malian Empire had gone into decline, beset by a succession of disputes and inept leadership, and around 1430, Gao gained independence under the rule of the Sunni dynasty. Sunni Suleiman expanded its territory by conquering the Mema region, but it was the later ruler, Sunni Ali, who put what became known as the Songhai Empire on the map. It's important to understand that Islam had become widespread in the region by this point, and the historic city of Timbuktu had a thriving Islamic scholarly society. It was the Muslim leaders of this city who invited Sunni Ali 
to help rid them of the marauding Tuareg raiders in 1464. But rather than just driving out the Tuareg, Ali decided to annex the city and followed that success by launching a seven-year siege that resulted in the capture of Jannah. These newly conquered cities formed the bulwark of the Songhai Empire. But Ali's actions have also led to questions about his own adherence to Islam. And it's something I put to Professor Mauro Nobili. Sunni Ali, he was effectively was the first ruler when it became an empire. I've read different things on his religion because I've heard people at the time describing him as being godless and saying that he practiced the traditional religions like animism. But then at the same time, purportedly, he was a Muslim. It is also a complicated question that I think uh, uh, in order to understand uh, how to deal with this, we need to really understand how we know information about Sonia Ali's uh, religious uh, practices. We mostly know it uh, from sources that are written uh, by his opponents. And of course, his opponents in this specific case tend to be the Muslim scholars of Timbuktu, as well uh, as uh, you know the uh, notables that are close uh, to the Askia, so the dynasty that will over eventually overthrow Sonia Ali who kind of in cahoots with the Muslim scholars, eventually will record the so-called official history of the Songhai Empire. So essentially it's all the interest in kind of demonize the Sonni Ali as a, as a bad Muslim, as a godless person, as you, as you mentioned. I think a more complicated and most likely accurate approach would be that first of all to take into consideration the bias of these sources, but at the same time, the very fact that a polity like the Songhai Empire was not exclusively ruling over Muslims. So there were a lot of subjects to the Songhai rulers who were in fact attached to different forms of traditional religions. So we need to understand that without talking about syncretism, we are not talking about people practicing kind of less pure forms of Islam. Well, in fact, we are talking about a diversity of religious affiliations. And as such, I think that the rulers of these diverse polities had to kind of compromise uh, in the way in which they were uh, dealing with their religions and their subjects, uh, not basically obliterating a form of religiosity in favor of the other. So I think there is two different elements at stake. Uh, one uh, is the bias of the sources, and second is the religious complexity of these uh, heterogeneous polities. Under Ali and his successes, the Songhai Empire grew pretty rapidly to include territory from Senegal on the west coast all the way across into modern-day Niger. Was there uniformity in these regions at that time in terms of culture, religion, language? Did the people generally speak Arabic, for example? Or was it like the Austro-Hungarian Empire before World War I with just a huge amount of diversity? I think it's kind of complicated uh, to actually locate... uh these medieval or early modern states on maps. Because, you know, we always, when you think about empires, we always think about the Roman Empire. So we think about, you know, fixed borders, patrolling borders, which in fact is not really the case of many uh, pre-colonial West African polities, and I would say African polities. And I like to describe always these uh, uh, empires as spheres of influences, which you will have like uh, certain centers of power, like, you know, the capital Gao, for instance, uh, in the case of the Songhai, and in time uh, will uh, 
expand in terms of influence uh, into more peripheral areas. So, for instance, you mentioned Senegal, and we do have in the sources references to a series of military expeditions uh, of the Songhai army into the region that are actually of you know, contemporary northern Senegal in Sudatoro, in, you know, in the Senegal uh, River Valley. So the extent of the Songhai Empire expanded and shrunk in the course of the time. What is sure is that there was a core in the Songhai Empire, it was along the river Niger, I would say south of Gao, most likely at the border between contemporary Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso, the three nation borders down there, all the way to the city of Jenne, south of Timbuktu, that area was uh, relatively firmly controlled by the Songhai uh, Empire. Well, in fact, even within this core uh, were a lot of like regional uh, notables, uh, oftentimes in charge of uh, relatively large armies, uh, which could uh, also exert some kind of independence within uh, the Songhai Empire. But the thing that you were um, referring to, the idea of a uh, multitude of languages, of ethnicities, or even of political organization was definitely one of the features of the Songhai Empire. So diversity, ethnic, linguistic, political diversity, social diversity was definitely one of the main elements of the Songhai Empire. We can think, for instance, that at the same time, the Songhai Empire would control in the southern part of the Sahara nomadic confederations uh, of, you know, Berbers uh, and, let's say, uh, you know, Arabophone Qabail, uh, uh, so tribes uh, of the southern Sahara, with a very loose, you know, centralized uh, authority in that case. Uh, but at the same time, they were also controlled uh, uh, cities that were more like city-states, if you want to put it like this. I mean, the, the role that Jenne plays uh, in the Chronicles of Timbuktu, the 17th century Chronicles of Timbuktu, is always, always that uh, of a city, kind of like Timbuktu, that was uh, almost uh, persistently governed internally by the sort uh, of uh, elite uh, of the notables and the scholars, you know, Jenne and, uh, and Timbuktu. So definitely uh, diversity is a key uh, concept to understand the functioning of these empires. And even linguistically, you mentioned Arabic uh, and Arabic was for sure one of the lingua franca, I mean, uh, the, of the Songhai Empire, and we know it because uh, we know of many of the scholars of the literati of the time writing in Arabic, uh, but at the, same, uh, at the same time, Songhai, that Songhai language was itself uh, one of the languages that was spoken, not exclusively by Songhai native speakers, but at the same time, uh, we know of people speaking uh, you know, Tamashek, different uh, forms of like spoken Arabic, uh, most likely Sonink, uh, most likely different languages belonging, you know, to the Mande continuum uh, of languages. Uh, and you can see this, for instance, even in the Arabic chronicles of Timbuktu, in which you can see different layers of languages, uh, different words that actually come from, uh, uh, you know, multiplicity of languages. Uh, and I think that, you know, the ethnic and the language diversity is also one of the fascinating uh, aspects of uh, the state. But at the same time, one of the complexities, the, the, the difficulties of doing research uh, is that, for instance, uh, I have to persistently, when I do my translation, for instance, uh, play around with uh, Songhai dictionaries, uh, Tamashek dictionaries, you know, Mande, different Mande dictionaries, uh, uh, 
full full the dictionaries etc so as a sort of an embodiment of this diversity you yeah. are referring to with regard to Islam, by this time, various sects and branches of Islam had arisen with Sunni, Shiites, and in Senegal we had Sufi Islam. But within the Songhai Empire and Timbuktu, were there any elements that distinguished Islam in this particular region? Definitely, by the time of the Songhai Empire, we already had uh, in the centers of scholarship like Timbuktu, most likely like Gao, we know very little actually about the scholars of Gao. For sure, in cities like Jenne, uh, in Walata, northwest of Timbuktu, we do have a developed, a mature tradition of Islamic learning, and we have a body of scholars who were repositories of an established Sunni Maliki tradition of Islam. So, if in the past the Sahara had seen the emergence of non-Sunni communities, I'm thinking about, uh, for instance, the early Ibadi communities, uh, very important uh, in, uh, you know, in the Sahara. In fact, already by the 11th century, with the spread of the uh, Almoravid movement, you know, from southern Mauritania into Morocco, eventually Andalus, etc., Sunni Malikism had become, uh, at that point, the established form of Islam, to which the scholars of the, you know, the great cities of the Songhai Empire belonged to. When it comes to Sufism, it's a very interesting uh, development we are seeing uh, at this time because uh, often uh, contemporary observers tend to associate uh, Sufism exclusively with uh, you know the different Sufi brotherhoods that are very prominent in uh, today's West Africa, especially in Senegal that you mentioned before. So at this stage, we absolutely have no trace uh, of organized. Sufi brotherhoods, which will develop way later in time, uh, and eventually become prominent in the region of Tombouctou, so in the, in the Niger, and especially, I would say, by the uh, second half of the 18th century. But uh, this doesn't mean that we don't have traces uh, of a developed Sufi tradition without brotherhoods in uh, Timbuktu. So all of the Chronicles of Timbuktu, so going back to the 17th century documents that are the most, I would say, vivid descriptions of the life of the Muslims under the Songhai Empire, although they were written after the fall of the empire itself, what emerges clearly is that ideas about ascetism, piety, you know, what people translate as miracles, you know, the karamat, were already part of the daily life of Muslims in uh, in uh, in you know in the region of the of the Songhai Empire, so I would say a Sunni Maliki strong you know with strong Sufi orientation tradition existed at the time, with a body of scholars uh, that also kind of created sort of a, a corporate entity within uh, the uh, the borders of the Songhai Empire, that already characteristic uh, you know before the 1591 fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On from that point, we know that Askiel the Great went to Mecca, and previously the, the ruler of Mali had gone to Mecca. And obviously, this was a trade route. But is there much evidence that people in Europe had any contact with the Songhai Empire or were aware of it? Or was it something that was kind of confined just to their immediate neighbors, like the Egyptians and the Arabians? 
No, I would say that, uh, of course, uh, you mentioned, you know, Mansa Musa and, the, the, you know, the famous pilgrimage of the Malian uh, kings or kind of you know, slightly earlier in time, uh, in a way put West Africa literally on the map, even for the uh, Europeans. I'm thinking about uh, the uh, Catalan Atlas, you know, the 1375 uh, uh, Catalan, uh, Catalan Atlas by Abraham Cascas, the Mallorca Jewish uh, cartographer, uh, allegedly, uh, um, produced by him that has uh, Mansa Musa sitting literally with a golden globe in his hand in the middle of the Sahara, very close actually to the Timbuktu that appears uh, as the name under the name Timbuktu. is the first actually appearance of Timbuktu in Western, uh, uh, in any Western source. So already the pilgrimage of Mansa Musa indeed uh, made Westerners uh, aware uh, of the existence of sophisticated, complex Muslim uh, empires south of the Sahara. Now it seems like the uh, pilgrimage of the Askia, Askia Muhammad uh, was less, uh, uh, I would say, bombastic than the one uh, of Mansa Musa, maybe not reaching the European audiences uh, as uh, Mansa Musa had done. But we also need to keep in mind that uh, at least at the end of the Songhai Empire, it is a time in which uh, European traders and even uh, uh, diplomatic missions are in fact very well established uh, in North Africa. So, for instance, when uh, uh, in 1591 uh, uh, Moroccan army, uh, you know, takes over uh, Gao and eventually Timbuktu, there were uh, British observers uh, at the court of Ahmed, uh, uh, you know, Al Mansur, uh, the, uh, the Moroccan Sultan, uh, and they actually record of the arrival of the caravans and full of the beauty of the conquest of the Songhai Empire. So definitely it's echoes, reverberation, what was happening on the other side of the Sahara arrived in Europe. Without forgetting that, you know, the Moroccan, the so-called Moroccan conquest of this, uh, the Songhai Empire was in fact uh, mostly led uh, by European renegades. So Jaudar, uh, the, uh, you know, the conqueror of, of Gaul is in fact a European renegade. So most likely, you know, there were all of these uh, information that directly would reach Europe, it goes well beyond this kind of more indirect mm. connection across the Sahara and sporadic travelers like you know, Antonio Malpante the century before, two centuries before actually, the conquest, etc., that would record uh, information about the Niger band uh, for a European audience, yeah. Going back to Sonny Ali, when he died or possibly was murdered, his son was to succeed him before Akus or Askia the Great come to power. As with Sonny Ali, there are reports that his son wasn't a good Muslim. Does this suggest that by this point in time, Islam had become so strong in the Songhai Empire that having a devout Muslim leader was seen as crucial? No, I think, I think you, you, you're hitting the right spot when you say that by the end of the 1400s, Islam had become a major component of West African statecraft. So Askia Muhammad uh, basically leads a coup d'etat with the support uh, of the western provinces of the Songhai Empire uh, and especially of the, the Muslim elite that is, was composed scholars and especially traders. So it is the components of the supporter, I think, of Askia Muhammad uh, that uh, eventually leads uh, to the... Uh, understanding of Sonny Ali and Sonny Baru, his son, uh, as a bad Muslim, because it is the language that is used to justify a coup 
that sees Islam as becoming a very important element in the aspiration of power of any person who aspires again to become a ruler of Islam. Ask you the great went to Mecca and he brought scholars back from Egypt and other places to Timbuktu. Did that have an effect on further evangelizing the people who are still practicing traditional religions, or was it more consolidating the Muslim core they already had? I don't think that there is any, I would say, unusual uh, expansion uh, in terms of number or size of the Muslim communities as a consequence, uh, as a direct consequence of proselytism on behalf of neither the Muslim scholars uh, of Tombaktu or of Gao, etc., nor of those who might have come, uh, you know, uh, as part of this uh, intensification of the relationship with, you know, North African uh, uh, the states that took place, you know, after uh, Asya Muhammad uh, getting to power and his pilgrimage. I think that definitely there is, uh, again, a stronger uh, attention that is paid to specific aspects uh, of um, uh, Islamic uh, uh, tradition of rule that will become, uh, again, more part of the statecraft of West Africa and especially the Songhai Empire. That's for sure. I mean, in a way, this can uh, set in motion uh, a series of dynamics, kind of like when the Arabs conquered North Africa, that will eventually create uh, those economic and social uh, spaces uh, for uh, conversion of some of the local people who are originally non-Muslim. But in fact, the boom in the conversion of people of this region will actually take place way later on. And I would argue that some kind of major increase in number actually takes place with the early colonial. During the reign of Askia the Great, the Songhai Empire modernized in many respects. With the introduction of a full-time army, the construction of canals to bolster irrigation, the establishment of religious schools, and he even introduced inspectors to maintain standards at trade centers. Like his predecessor, he also engaged in warfare and expanded into territory that is today in the nation of Burkina Faso. But despite his conquest, he didn't attempt to impose Islam on the native population. By 1528, Askia probably in his mid-80s, was ailing. He'd already planned for the end when he reportedly bought back supplies from his pilgrimage to Mecca to build his own elaborate tomb. But he wasn't afforded a peaceful demise. His ambitious sons organized a coup, and one of them, Musa, seized power. But Musa's reign was short-lived, as he in turn was usurped three years later, after which the kingdom descended into chaos as Askia's sons and grandsons fought for control. Well, it seems that definitely, or at least this is how the chronicles portray the decay of the Songhai, is that with the exception uh, of the uh, rule of Askia Dawood uh, in the mid of the uh, 1500s, uh, in fact, uh, the Songhai Empire would be basically consistently under a uh, state of almost civil war, in which you know the different brothers uh, and cousins uh, will fight over power. And I think that this surely weakened the Songhai Empire at the point that when uh, this external threat will come at the end uh, of the uh, you know the 16th century, this, that Songhai Empire was simply not prepared anymore uh, to face you know, an important threat, and especially a threat uh, that came with uh, higher weapons that were uh, unknown 
1590, Ahmed al-Musa, Sultan of a region in today's Morocco, launched an invasion of the Songhai Empire. It was a controversial move, as both empires were unified religiously under Islam. But after an expensive war with Portugal, some scholars have suggested al-Musa wanted to replenish his coffers with the riches from Songhai. Others have said he wanted control of the all-important trade routes, or that he simply wanted to bolster his standing as a powerful Muslim ruler. Whatever the motivation, he sent 20,000 soldiers across the Sahara to face a surprised, yet larger army. But crucially, the invaders had modern weaponry in the form of guns. It was a decisive factor in the conflict. Thinking back to Askia the Great, he'd been very proud of his armed forces and military strength. So when the forces from Morocco invaded, had the Songhai Empire just neglected to maintain their military, or was it simply they didn't have knowledge of or access to modern weaponry? I think that might have been uh, like the appearance uh, of you know bioweapons uh, in West Africa, or at least in the Niger Band. I mean, we have similar cases, for instance, the Japanese invasion of Korea, and in a way that's a very similar impact of the, you know, of firearms. And I also think that, in a way, the very fact that the descendants of the Moroccan soldiers will locally become known as the Arma, that according to the kind of standard etymological understanding, comes from the Arumat, which is basically the rifleman. In, in a way, and that is the big impact that uh, firearms might have played uh, in the fight with Sankai and Morocco. With the empire lost, survivors fled and established a number of small kingdoms, the most notable of which was Dendi, which is sited in modern-day Niger. But even here, conflict with the Moroccans continued periodically, while coups and counter-revolutions raged on. But Dendi somehow survived, until 1901, when France seized full control and removed the last vestiges of the Songhai Empire from the map. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.